0: We were talking about how difficult it is when you are in a leadership role to see well the difference between sacrificing yourself in a good way versus losing yourself. You know, as pastors, we have a distinctly Christian perspective on leadership. Christ gave himself to his church, right? That is a yes. sacrificial thing, but he never lost himself. Ooh. When our post-everything world has turned life upside down, how do you even know which end is up?
1: If you're committed to a community or a cause greater than yourself, you don't have the luxury of checking out or the freedom to burn out. It's not enough
0: to just keep surviving. We need to thrive again. This is Post Everything. A podcast about remapping culture and rethinking leadership in a liminal age. All right. Welcome back to Post Everything, a podcast about remapping culture and rethinking leadership in a digital age. This is part three of a series that my buddy John and I have been doing where we are trying to talk about what does it mean to lead adaptively and how do we lead in a liminal age? And so I definitely recommend you check out parts one and two, which were really focused on, respectively, the principles of adaptive leadership and leading in a liminal space, where we kind of brought in some great information from two books in particular Leadership on the Line by Heifetz and Linsky, and then Canoeing the Mountains by Todd Bolsinger. we're going to talk about more of those both today and reference them. So definitely go back and listen to that if you haven't yet. And then part two was all about rethinking leadership through an adaptive lens. Like, what does it mean to be an adaptive leader? in a liminal age, like what is different about adaptive leadership versus what we are used to considering what leadership actually is. And we talked about institutions, which is my hobby horse and favorite thing to talk about ever. (laughs) But John, today, we're going to talk about part three and kick us off and, and like, how are we focusing and kind of concluding this series of leading in a liminal age? Where do we need to go?
1: Yeah, so today we're going to focus in on rethinking leadership role and health. So, another way to think about that is maybe last week we talked about what the leader needed to do externally, like what actions and attitudes did they need to do in their organization as they led. Today, as we lead differently, what does it look like for us to do things internally? Like, what needs to be happening inside of us, in our mind, in our hearts? you know in in our souls and one of the reasons why is in a liminal space leadership is just different especially in the sense that our giftings might not have the potency that we're used to
0: mm.
1: you know i i do business and executive coaching and one of the things i found with clients was that when covid hit they were just worn out and it wasn't mm. that they had lost any skill or any power It was just that the challenges were so new and unique in Mm. that liminal space. So I I found a helpful comparison, the idea of walking backwards on an airport walkway. And we might have mentioned this before, but, (laughs) you know, if you're in great shape and you can run a 5K and you have a great time, and then all of a sudden you have to do that on an airport walkway that's going the wrong way, you're not going to get the same time. Now, you haven't... (laughs) (laughs) Right? You haven't gotten in worse shape. It's just gotten a whole lot harder. And so we have these expectations for ourselves that come out and our giftings might just not have the same potency. For instance, we mentioned last week where I think in pre-COVID and pre-Christian or now we're in a post-Christian world, but before we really could own that, speaking and being a good speaker, being a good public speaker could gather people to the leader. And I think that still happens to some leaders, but I think far less, Yeah. far less leaders can gather a crowd just by speaking. In fact, Bolsinger says that speaking now serves leadership. and What that means is you have to be a better leader than you are a speaker. Hmm. The second thing that's interesting, the pressure point we might be feeling that backwards airport walkway is what it even means to cast vision. So, A lot of times people could gather a crowd and get them mobilized through vision casting by painting a picture of a desired future that motivates people, that inspires people. But Bolsinger says, hey, listen, that's changed even what vision casting is. He says it's not necessarily about seeing possibilities and communicating excitement. In a place where everything's liminal, everything's changing in uncharted territory, you don't really know what's ahead. <laughs> yeah. And so you can't really cast vision. Mm. Rather, vision is about accurately seeing where you are, who you are, and what's happening around you. And so we have to be able to have an internal switch as we feel those pressure points in this liminal
0: space. Man, John, I can't even tell you how much I appreciate and love that airport analogy, the walkway going backwards, because we see the result of that life with leaders dropping like flies. And I'm not talking about like the kind of like dropping like a moral failure or anything like that. I'm talking about how, you know, John, I can't remember if we've talked about this or not, but I'd say I know about 10 or 12 pastors in the last year who have transitioned in their ministry role of those, let's call it 12 of those 12, only two of them did so in order to take a different ministry leadership role or as pastor somewhere. The other 10 are not in ministry right now. And that Mm -hmm. doesn't mean they won't be, but yeah, they were walking backwards on a walkway, trying to do what was familiar to them in a completely different environment and in a different way. And man, they kept knocking over kids. You know, okay. So the analogy doesn't, you can't press the analogy too far. In other words, you kept tripping and stumbling and falling, even though you know, you are a good leader. And that creates this real kind of identity crisis in a lot of ways. Yes, absolutely. Because I mean, how many times have you thought to yourself or heard a fellow pastor say like, at some point during or after the pandemic since then, man, I don't even know who I am anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's something about the way the environment has changed that has called us to question calling, whether or not this is even possible to do. And so, if parts one and two were really focused on the context that's kind of cultivating that experience and that feeling, today we're really going to talk about, like, okay, what the hell do we even do with that? And like, where do we start? Because that can be a really overwhelming experience. And so, got kind of three chunks, you know, because we're pastors. And so we podcast like we preach. And so there's three points with some sub points and everything, but like, we're going to really cover three areas. And the first is, we really need to rethink our leadership role. Right? Yeah. Because if we, we mentioned last time, if this is a pruning of fruit bearing branches, to kind of paraphrase John 15, if God is pruning fruit bearing branches in order to produce more fruit, how do we cooperate with that? Right. So how do we rethink our leadership role? Maybe in a way that we didn't know we needed to until we started walking backwards on the airport walkway.
1: Exactly. Yeah. the, The first place I really think we need to rethink our leadership role is just within our posture as leaders. You know, when you've been around a while and when you have more experience than anyone else in the room, it feels good to walk in a room and sort of be the expert. But I don't think that's the posture of a leader And how they think about themselves now, especially in this post-Christian world, rather than being the experience expert, I think the transition that we're seeing is that people are posturing themselves as the chief learner. Mm. That doesn't mean they don't know things. That doesn't mean they're not sure of things. But in this post-Christian world and a post-pandemic world, post-everything world, we don't know what the future holds. Mm. And so the person who is certain about things actually is probably deceiving themselves. I love the show 1883, which is a prequel to Yellowstone. Hmm. And um, the guides are taking these people along the Oregon trail. And now I played Oregon trail, the video game or the computer (laughs) game growing up.
0: Man, dying of dysentery sucks.
1: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You know, and, and that was so funny because like you could drown or you could die of dysentery or you could get a snake bite or you could run out of food in the Oregon trail Game And it was always like, oh, man, like it wasn't that hard. But in this show, 1883, Tim McGraw and Faith Hill are the lead characters and they end up kind of leading people. But like people are dying so randomly every day, like you're just on your horse and all of a sudden your horse gets bit by a snake, you fall off and break your neck. And it's like you have no idea what's over the next hill whether it is going to be people who rob you or whatever. So the posture of a chief learner going, we're going to learn as much as possible to be able to face the challenges ahead. And so what that means as a chief learner, you're not just trying to get people to a certain destination. You know, I I think even looking at the Tim McGraw and I think Sam Elliott, who's also in that, They at one point go, man, these people will never make it to Oregon. So Mm. at that point, they're posturing themselves as the expert, experienced person who's like, just follow me and we'll go there. But they kind of have to reposition themselves and reposture themselves to what Bolsinger's definition of leadership is. He says leadership is energizing a community of people towards their own transformation in order to accomplish a shared mission in the face of a changing world to use the Oregon Trail, it's not just about getting to the destination at the end of the Oregon Trail. It's about being transformational so that the people you're leading can become the type of people who could do the Oregon Trail. And to do that, obviously, you have to have expertise, but you also have to posture yourself as a learner.
0: What I love about the way you're framing this, John, I don't know if you're intending to do this, but you're really exposing how bankrupt this very common leadership lie every leader is tempted to believe, which is if these people would just do the thing that I want <laughs> them to do, yeah, the problem that they're asking me for help in solving in their lives, it would go away. It would fix it. And I've told them that this is what you do, but they just don't do it. And I mean, at least I've heard that that's a temptation. You know, I've not right, ever felt right. that way myself, never definitely never in ministry. Yourself. Pastors definitely <laughs> don't say, man, this whole ministry thing would be a whole lot easier if people were involved. Right? No. But what I love about that is the posture of being a chief learner yeah. is very different from, I think the way we try to fight that temptation, which is typically, and normally, I think it is this, like, I'm going to stuff that down and be like, I know that's not true. Right. Mm. But being a chief learner invites curiosity, both of the people you're trying to lead of maybe the the context around the challenges and the problems that they're asking for help with. And it actually prepares you to be more adaptable yourself and be flexible because you're listening and paying attention and tending to the liminal elements that are causing the strife and the tension in the first place. So yeah, I love that, man. Sorry, I keep going. Hit hit me with number two, though.
1: So within that, the posture is not expertise, but learning the priority needs to be building trust hmm. with people as you take them off the map. Now, that I love that phrase. I'm fully stealing that from Bolsinger, Todd Bolsinger's book, Canoeing the Mountains. He talks about, you know, when you're on the map, things are more clear. When you go off the map, they're not. You need to build trust with people when you're on the map. What he means by that is, when people are in a familiar place, when things are familiar and they're used to them and the, the space is less liminal, it's very key that you build their trust in you and the way that you lead so that they will follow you when things get crazy, when things are changing, when you take them off the map. Mm. If you haven't shown competency, if you haven't been consistent, if you haven't been transparent, if you haven't gone at an appropriate pace... If you haven't gotten wins for people or if you haven't communicated changes personally before publicly, you're not building trust. So then when you move into that really ambiguous space, Mm. the people have no handholds because they're not holding on to you as a leader. Everything's changing and you want them to be able to trust you. In fact, in a liminal space, trust is currency. Mm. I mean, it always has been. But I think as we move forward into this unknown of where the culture is going, we need to lean into that even more. I know that for some leaders, they're those who have like a really clear plan and that can bring forth trust, but yet no one knows them. So they might be kind of a distance leader. Mm. They might need to build trust by being more relational. On the other side, there are people who are really relational. They love people. You can call them at 1 a.m. in the morning and they'll come over and help, you know, if you have a leaky faucet or something like that. Um, But they're constantly switching directions based on the latest thing that someone gave them input about. Those people need to learn to build trust by sticking with a plan, by strategizing. So the priority is building trust as you go off the map into a liminal space.
0: That's awesome, man. Yeah. So you got, you know, rethinking our leadership role in terms of posture and priority. The third of this point is just gifting. Right.
1: Mm, Yeah, for sure.
0: I mean, I keep coming back to it. It really haunts me because it was prophetic. A conversation in an interview with, I'm totally blanking on his name right now. Chris. Bruno. Yes, Chris Bruno. So a conversation that has haunted me. It was an interview got to do with Chris Bruno at the beginning edge of the pandemic in June of 2020. And I asked, like, how is the stress of this affecting people and, and leaders especially? And what he said is that we did not know this, but we have been functioning at a superhuman capacity as leaders before the pandemic. And that was kind of, in some senses, a reality and also an illusion that was enabled through the use of technology to very much multiply our capacity, right? We've been operating at a superhuman capacity. Mm. The pandemic is going to force us to operate at a fully human capacity. And that's what we mean by rethinking your gifting. Not that you don't have any in being finite or fully human, and not that you have more than you actually do, but to be, well, to embrace it and to rethink it through this posture of humility, right? Mm -hmm. Because you can't do it all. And you might have been able to before, or maybe you fooled yourself into thinking that you could before and accepting that kind of feels like quitting in a sense, or feels like failure or like being subhuman, but it really is a fully human thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we keep using this greenhouse analogy. I think it might be helpful to actually use that framework. How would like rethinking your gifting work if we use that greenhouse analogy for our organizations.
0: Yeah, so what John, you're referring to there's, in part two, we talked about how institutions, when they are healthy, are functioning as greenhouses. They are in the context of a inhospitable environment, but their purpose is fulfilled through growing the people and growing the you know plants inside its walls. The plants and the people who opt into the greenhouse, who are members of the greenhouse, are grown and nourished in various ways And I think that there are, John, you know, without naming names, but in our world of church planting, there is a lot of pressure, Mm. not only explicitly, but also implicitly in the incentive structures and the ways that we pursue church planting strategies that communicate that every church planter in building this greenhouse has to be both an architect and a gardener, right? Yes. They have to be able to do it all and operate a superhuman capacity. And also, by the way, with only three years of funding, you're supposed to like become self-sustaining in three to five years. And also, by the way, you should really only grow your church through evangelism and not transfer growth because that's bad. So like, how is anybody actually supposed to do that? Right. I'm still on the word pressure. You said church planners are under pressure. I'm actually (laughs) on the
1: floor in the fetal position right now. So,
0: I'm sorry. I should have included a trigger warning there. Right. But I think part of what means to rethink our gifting in a fully human way is to accept that, you know what, you might not be an architect and a gardener. You're probably going to be one or the other. And I think gone are the days when any church planter can, like, I don't care who you are or where you're doing it. I don't think you can function as both and still like, I don't know, be married and have your kids love you and or not implode in some way on the timelines that we're operating of. I think we need to embrace a team-based model for like, so many things, yeah. honestly, pretty much yeah. everything. Because what it means to accept that you're fully human means kind of accepting and rethinking your gifting, either as an architect or a gardener and not both. And that means, you know, if you're the architect, you're probably going to be working on the organization or the gardener is working in the organization, right? Mm. The architect is going to be thinking about how to make room and space. And the gardener is going to be thinking about what do we do with it now that we have it? They're both in a sense, entrepreneurial. They're both very high leadership, intensive types of roles. And one is not necessarily better than the other. I'd say you need both, right? And so in this liminal moment, whatever that is, wherever you are, as you're listening to this, You're going to have different seasons that are going to require you, if you are thinking about your team or your organization as an institution, as a greenhouse, then you are going to need to function sometimes more in your capacity as an architect or a gardener. That just has to happen. But knowing and understanding, like, you know what, just to speak personally, like I'm definitely more of an architect. Yeah. And so the fact that there are gardener needs in my church doesn't mean that I don't have to do those things. It means that as I do that, I just need to accept that, you know what, this isn't going to energize me as much as it used to in this role and capacity, but that's where the needs are. So I'm going to do it, but it it gives you some freedom to not feel like you have to be the expert. You can be the chief learner (laughs) as a gardener, right? Also as an implication of this, you're going to need different co-leaders or based on the co-leaders around you, you may have to flex and adapt to where your emphasis is in order to help and sustain them, especially if you are a leader to them. But honestly, I think the biggest thing that we need to rethink around gifting is being far more proactive in finding and bringing in or investing in leaders who are complementary to you, whether as an architect or a gardener, than we are used to. It is not just yeah. something like, it will be great to get to that someday. It is now, you won't get to anything if you don't.
1: Yeah, that's a great way to put it. It's not that we need to work to get to that. It's that we need to get that in order to get anywhere.
0: Yes. And so just to give an example of that, that's a real scenario I just shared about, like, I'm an architect, but I'm leading a gardener needed organization right now, right? As a church planner, as a pastor. And so in order to make that work and find someone, we're hiring and hoping to bring on someone as a pastor of spiritual formation that requires me to accept I'm fully human, right? Because a superhuman would try to do it all anyway. And let's say for the sake of argument that I didn't actually reach the end of my capacity and that's actually not even a choice anymore, realistically or otherwise. That's what it means to just accept that you're finite and you can't do it all. It means you're gonna have to find somebody else. And I had to go and do fundraising for that. But you know what? That's actually easier for me as an architect than trying to do it all. Anyway, I hope this is just kind of like helping spark some ideas between posture, priority and gifting of like, okay, how can we get on the balcony and think maybe a little bit more creatively instead of trying to do the same thing and expect different results?
1: Yeah, yeah. So that's helpful in terms of rethinking our leadership role. What about internally, Brad? What about our own health? What's going on in our souls? How do we rethink our leadership
0: health? Yeah, I'll be honest with you, man. This is an area that's really hard for me right now. Like, if there is an adaptive challenge I feel like I face, it is trying to figure this out. And part of it is made really difficult by having two young kids in our stage of life. And also, we regathered as a church. Like, I've got all all kinds of great excuses for why this is difficult right (laughs) now. But, you know, when we were talking in the virtual green room ahead of hitting record here, we were talking about how difficult it is when you are in a leadership role to see well, the difference between sacrificing yourself in a good way versus losing yourself, hmm. right? Our role as leaders, if we're seeing our role through the lens of either architect or gardener in a greenhouse environment is to be in the greenhouse, giving ourselves to it. Hmm. That's really important. I mean, like, you know, as pastors, we have a distinctly Christian perspective on leadership Christ gave himself to his church, right? That is a sacrificial thing, but he never lost himself.
1: Ooh, yeah.
0: That's a very different thing. And yet we can find that we are there often without ever intending to, but because we don't think about in an intentional way, our leadership health. And maybe even think about this to leverage some of the things that we've talked about so far is like, think about this as the technical support that you need to increase and bring you back into the range of productive distress that Heifetz and Linsky talk about to be in this area where the pruning actually does bear fruit so that you're able to receive and cooperate with the pruning far more intentionally and willingly because you've been nourished as not an architect or a gardener who exists outside of or apart from the greenhouse, but who also lives within it themselves. This is actually us practicing what we preach in a lot of ways so that we can find joy in the trials and not just a joy apart from the trials.
1: That's good. That's good. Yeah. Bolsinger talks about the difference between generating capacity and dependency on an organization. And I think as church planners, and for me in particular, there was a time where like I just really wanted this thing to get up and get running and be successful so bad because it felt like so much was riding on it and we put so much time Mm -hmm. and energy into it that there becomes this sort of like, I need this, I need this rather than going, who does the organization need me to be? Mm -hmm. And one of the mistakes I made was I just kept leaning more and more and more into the organization rather than pulling back, getting on the balcony and saying, how can I generate more capacity So that when I'm in the organization, I can actually bring more health, more advancement, even if it means less time. Mm. And so one of the things as we rethink leadership health is that we have to think about ourselves in terms of how can we generate capacity through becoming healthier, through life-giving spaces and practices. Mm. Otherwise, our tendency as leaders will be to go into escapism or to just get distracted. It is really hard to lead in a liminal space and it doesn't serve your ego very well, (laughs) you you know,
0: pros and cons,
1: (laughs) pros and cons. Right. I mean, there was a lot of times where I just like, I felt like a failure consistently felt like a failure. And one of the things I found in talking with other church planners, was just the idea of like getting involved with something else unrelated. Mm. So one could be just a hobby, like getting good at something. Uh, maybe a year and a half ago, I took up martial arts. And I've wanted to do that since I watched The Karate Kid in 1984. <laughs> and I've just, um, you know, I've just waited this long. And I'm and I'm, honest, I'm honestly having a blast doing it, you know. But that has created this capacity where I'm like learning to get good at something And it has nothing to do with the organization Mm. I'm leading. And so that sense of growing and succeeding and just being good at something, it's really helpful to have that apart from the organization.
0: Man, can I bring up another lie I think that is related to this? I think this is related to the superhuman capacity. Mm -hmm. You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, but we shouldn't need that. It's clearly an idol if failure is calling us to question our calling, we must be treating our church plan or whatever as a God. Right. But I think part of being fully human is like recognizing the actual objective reality and not expecting ourselves to be the ideal. I mean, like Jesus was not phased by failure, literally embraced crucifixion as a means of achieving victory over sin and death. So like, yeah, it's technically possible, but we're not him. And I think what you're talking about is actually just recognizing and realizing that there is a good thing about bearing fruit. And that even if we know that that won't be always, having opportunities to be more okay with that is really good. And to feel like we're scratching that itch elsewhere.
1: Right. And I think it's all how you frame it. I mean, for us as church planners, well, a guy named John Bryson, I think that's his name. He Mm -hmm. planted fellowship Memphis. He said... Church planning is like a knife fight. And to that, I added, church plan is like a knife fight in the dark. Oh, man. You know, and so if you're in a knife fight in the dark, you're not asking questions about, I don't know, should I care for my wounds? Like, what, <laughs> what I mean is, like, the questions we're yes. asking about church planning assume it's safe. Yeah. And it's not. In the middle of a war, you're just bandaging yourself every which way you can. And so the question of like, should we have a hobby so that we can do better in church planning? Like, it's a no brainer. You've got to do what you got to do so that you can stay healthy and stay leading. And yeah. I've even found this. I found in talking with some guys that actually going co-vocational or bivocational vocational has actually been a helpful thing. Now, when we talk about bivocational, we're talking about two different careers. Maybe you're a pastor and you do something else that's totally unrelated. Co-vocational is you're a pastor and you do a second thing that sort of relates to the pastoring. Mm -hmm. So I would consider myself co-vocational as a pastor and a business coach. They overlap a lot and I use a similar skill set. But what I've found in talking with guys who are having another source of income or another thing that they're doing and professionally is rather than it killing them, I'm finding <laughs> at least some of them are saying it's so good for me. Yeah. It's so good for me to go in and be good at this job or good at this thing. And it's bringing in income for my family. And it's just filling me up so that when I go into leading another organization that's much more challenging, I don't need as much from it. Hmm. And they're talking about that need – emotionally. Mm. I can go in and I can just give them what they need as a labor of love because I'm getting my tank filled somewhere else rather than looking to get my tank filled at this organization I'm leading. I find that's really interesting when we talk about generating capacity and not dependency.
0: Oh man. Yeah. You're making me think of a time a couple of years ago when I had a really, really hard several months that included having to navigate some conflict and I tried so hard like want to do the right thing and just like did not realize at the time how much I was kind of operating at a hyper vigilant kind of space which yes during the pandemic makes a lot of sense <laughs> but one of the guys that was involved in that season I asked him I was just like hey man can you give me some feedback Can you like help me? Like, what are the blind spots here? What is it that I'm missing? Like, what could I have done differently here to make this less painful and difficult? And he said, Man, Brad, if there's anything I found myself praying for you for, is that you would care less. Hmm. And I was like, Okay, if you were like, Hey, what do you think he's going to say? Not that I could list 20 things (laughs) and that wouldn't be one of them. Right. Because I was like, Man, what pastor? has ever been accused of caring too much. Right. That's not a thing. If anything, it's that they don't care enough for the people that they lead, that they're becoming selfish, that this happens. And that's when I realized how much I had swung the pendulum so hard in the other direction that I was actually still making it about me because I didn't want to fail. Not I wanted to grow the people in this greenhouse. Right. Yeah. And he was onto something. So I think, honestly, I don't know that I would really feel okay doing this podcast because that's what this is for me. And we've talked about this for both of us too. If I hadn't realized the importance of that point of those life giving practices that help generate capacity. So you don't have to care as much, not that you don't care or you care too little, but you care for the right reasons.
1: Yes. And in the right way.
0: Yes. Yes. For their good, not your need.
1: That's so good. That's so good. Yeah, I was glad you clarified because I was going to ask, so you don't care about your church anymore, Brad? <laughs> yeah. is that a, yeah. oh,
0: no, man. we all know what you mean. I hope they keep listening uh, after right. this point, if, they, if anybody right. is. So.
1: <laughs> no, we know that you're a great pastor. We yep. know that you love, love your people well, and you talk so highly of the table. I think another thing that we can throw out there is the capacity that truly rooting our identity in Christ creates for us. So Hmm. uh, psychologists talk about differentiation and some, we've already mentioned that, but a huge capacity for that comes from truly finding our identity in Christ, being grounded and rooted in who he is and who he says we are, despite our successes and our failures as leaders. And if that is truly, a source of your joy, a source of your affections, a source of how you view yourself. It will make you more malleable and adaptable. It'll take your hands and loosen your grip on your idols Mm. because you won't look to them for life. It'll make you more able to self-reflect on the areas that you're weak or a poor leader because you'll have that positive identity through Christ. And you can be a little bit more open about where you're succeeding or failing. Mm. But I find that's a repeated practice. We have to go back to that over and over again. Our hearts want to hold on to identities through so many other things, through the stories and lies we tell about ourselves. And so really that process of identifying yourself in Christ, it's always true. It's always true whether we believe it or not and yet at the same time we have to grow in our ability to rest and believe in that.
0: Yes, absolutely. It is so important for that to have both like a uh, how do I put this? like a an internal and an external initiation, right? You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking like, yeah, I definitely should read my bible more and and pray more and and also there's a certain amount of like effort and capacity necessary to jumpstart that, if you're trying to do that without an outside-in encouragement, that isn't just do it, but also like, hey, man, you're loved. And so whether that is actually having friendships outside of the team, institution, organization you're leading, who are able to remind you of that identity in Christ and to tell you like, hey, man, it's okay. There's no way you're going to be able to start those practices on your own internally or even deal with or weather, endure, be steadfast in the sabotage that we talked about last time. Yeah, That differentiating is what makes the difference between being able to see that sabotage as a dying of dysentery or an <laughs> opportunity to learn because you're the chief learner that this is not something that is actually an existential threat to you or the thing that you lead, that it can be a possibility, right? Or an opportunity. So yeah, in a lot of ways, it's kind of saving the best for last, right? Because none of the kind of self care, for lack of a better term that we talked about just prior to this, is going to stick if this isn't a part of it, for sure.
1: Yeah, that's good, Brad. That's good. What's our third thing we're rethinking as we rethink sort of the internal convictions and practices of a leader in a liminal space?
0: Man, if you had asked me this question, or if we had recorded this podcast I don't know four years ago, I would have started with this one, OK? Which is rethinking the form or shape or expression of your vision, mission values, right? Revisiting your overall why, your strategic plan. and the reason why this is third and not first, is because everything we've talked about so far has got to inform it the things that we've talked about before have changed the context you are a different leader you are a different person in this liminal age than you were before and so if you try to do the same things never mind it in the same way but if you try to do the same things as you did before it's not going to go well right the new reality must inform the what that embodies the why of your team institution community church etc and so like what do we even mean by that first of all man i think we really need And I'm summing this up by saying, like, I think we need to hold a funeral for the dead models and forms that aren't there anymore and aren't going to work. Yes. And what I mean by that is, in a lot of ways, the funeral is for the people who are attending it to process intentionally the loss and the grief and to kind of formally recognize in a way that kind of puts a stake in the ground that what was no longer is. And now we have to kind of move on. But I don't think we can really move on unless we actually very intentionally put to death and bury not just the failures and the hard things, but also the successes of the past, because those aren't going to be the successes of the future. You actually also wouldn't want them to be for the most part. We need to redefine success differently in a liminal age. And that's a pretty significant transformation. You might even say it's a from death to life transformation, right? We've got to hold a funeral for the relative safety and peace that we might've experienced or had in an organization. If the transformation that is needed and the growth of the people in the greenhouse is going to happen. And that means like having some hard conversations like guys, you know what? I know it's a silly example, but like we're not going to be able to have children's ministry past second grade and your kids are going to have to be in the service with you. And you know what? That's actually probably better anyway. In some ways, This is great. Now we're bringing along the adaptive support and like help with that transition, but we can't just go back to the way they're going. We don't have the resources to do the same thing. And we need to question whether or not that's the right thing going forward. So, whether those are the sacred cows or different things that you were like planning to do but hadn't gotten to yet, you know what? You may need to plan for different things.
1: That's good. That's good. I can relate to that a little bit. I mean, when we did ministry in a diverse part of St. Louis, with a church plant there and really saw some amazing things happen when it came to multiculturalism and people coming together in Jesus, celebrating him together. And
0: and John, I think you're under explaining this, like how many languages were spoke and translated on the fly within the congregation as the sermon know. was happening? I
1: don't know. I remember at one point, someone counted the number of first languages we had in the church. And I think it was like,
0: 10 to 12 different first languages. Yeah. So you're not talking about a potentiality, like something, you know, a church plant was trying to do. You're describing it actually worked and it happened. It was beautiful.
1: Yeah. It was a beautiful mess. That's for sure. It was a beautiful mess. It was a lot of fun and it ruined me in a good way. I mean, just saw so many beautiful things. And I said, this has got to be it for me. If Jesus is king, like he's going to draw people together who normally wouldn't be together. And Mm -hmm. we see that so much throughout the New Testament, just people wrestling with that. When we came down here, first of all, it was just a different situation. South Florida, they said kind of the joke about South Florida is that the great thing about us, it's so close to the United States of America. (laughs) And and by that, they mean like literally the world is here. Yeah, It's very different. People's orientation – is not that they kind of think that they're at the bottom of the United States. It's more that they think they're at the top of South America and the Caribbean. Mm. And so it was just a different place. Secondly, just because the refugees that were here, the immigrants that were here, the people who had been displaced that were here, were all like second or third generation. So our connection point in St. Louis was based on them being first generation. So all that was challenging, and had to reframe the strategies that we had used to reach people and sort of build what we had called God's blended family gathering to worship Mm. Jesus. But then over the last few years with the increase of the tribalism since the 2016 election and COVID, the death of George Floyd, it just felt like the world was on fire Mm. and it felt like everything I knew about how to strategize and move towards reconciliation and unity in Christ like wasn't working. So I had to kind of go, okay, do I still have that conviction? I do still have that conviction. I see it all throughout scripture. It's mm. it's what I want to be a part of, but but I started to explore the idea more of like tribalism. In fact, getting connected with some friends of ours, Patrick Miller and Keith Simon, and their book Truth Over Tribe It's funny, I actually found that book and then sort of got connected to them through you. But I started reading about just this idea of tribalism going, addressing tribalism might be how we unlock these issues of unity in Christ, because it feels like we can't even talk about the Hmm. issues without it getting so heated. So it wasn't a change of vision for me. It was more going... I need to rethink the form of how these things mm. are addressed. And so, you know, I pastor a small church. We're a diverse little church. But I've started leaning into this idea of tribalism. And it's funny. I, I'll let you know in a year how it goes. <laughs> but, uh, but so far, so good. Like people, everyone's nodding their head when I'm talking about it. And I know they don't vote for the same people. And I know they don't come from the same cultural background. So we'll see. That's just an example of how I found rethinking the form shape of a vision and mission without actually changing the vision and mission.
0: I love how you just put clothes on each of the different pieces that we've been talking about in terms of, you know, recognizing that what was is no longer right. And that this thing that you anticipate and thought was happening, which was interrupted by the liminal age I don't know if you had a formal funeral or anything, but you accomplished that by processing like, hmm, do I still believe in the original vision? Has my why changed? And your answer to that was no. Okay, that means then the form and shape needs to adapt. And you're kind of bleeding into your second point here, which was the result. And as you're leading people off the map, I just heard you say, I'm going to be a chief learner. I'll let you know how it goes. I don't know. I'm not (laughs) an expert here, right? right? I'm trying it. And that is like, you're pulling all of this together, but I think there's a really fun and a good thing that holding this funeral metaphorically or literally, I mean, you can have a, write it on a piece of paper and burn it in a fire in your backyard. That works, right? But holding that funeral for dead models and forms actually makes space for and helps to make that transition toward something that's actually getting back to why we lead in the first place.
1: Yeah. And that is being able to dream as leaders, dream and imagine about new expressions of the same vision and the same mission and the same values. Instead of like beating your head against the wall, going, I will make this strategy work to accomplish the vision. Going, okay, I still believe in the vision. Let's change the strategy, but let me mm. dream here. Let me get a yeah. let me get a blank whiteboard and just start guessing and brainstorming and thinking and i would say not just imagining but really mm. working on your own heart to stir up longing for the vision mm. cuz you want to have the conviction of the vision you want you want to embody the vision so you got to believe it so you got to stir up longing for this vision in your own heart a couple of ways that I've actually found that have been really helpful for me with that in terms of dreaming about new expressions and stirring up longing for the vision have been to get out of my context mm. and get somewhere else where I have an opportunity to see someone who's doing something similar. So I partner with a pastor in West Africa. I've been, I think, five or so times to see him and Whenever I go to West Africa and see what the believers are doing there and how they're living and how they're making impact for the kingdom with the little resources they have, I come back so energized. And, mm. you know, it really makes me love the vision because I see a different expression of it. So, for instance, mm. in the country I go to called Togo, one of the pastors there is working among the different actual tribes that live in that country to help them work together in the church. And it's a really hard thing, but then I see that happening. I'm like, man, I'm energized to see the, the unique challenges that they have, but also the unique solutions they're having. And it makes me dream and imagine and long. And even this, it deepens my conviction. It deepens my own conviction for the vision and the mission and values. And so then I come back And I go, hmm, what if, what if, and I just start dreaming. And I think that's an awesome, it's an awesome resource to have just to be able to rethink the form and shape and vision and mission and values. You don't have to do it all yourself. You can steal it from other people and let them help you.
0: Man, you know what I think is incredible here is it's hitting me just as we're processing this, how much this is actually the same point of the need for outside in encouragement, reminder of our identity in Christ, we're also going to need the outside in inspiration and reminder and the hope of seeing other greenhouses bearing fruit. yeah. Yeah, Because are we not the most discouraged? Are not leaders the most discouraged when the world seems to be our world? Right. And getting out of our perspective, like everything we're talking about here is how to, as a leader, get on the balcony in the way that Heifetz and Linsky talk about in leadership on the line to be able to get the perspective to see how the dance is flowing and shaping on the board or on the dance floor in ways that you couldn't if you were still consumed and subsumed into the dance and could not figure out why you were stepping on people's toes. Right. Yeah, exactly.
1: Beating your head against the
0: wall. God, and the wall hurts man it it's does. really hard <laughs> yeah and i just like even just to to reflect even a little bit more just how much that is also like an incredible reminder of how we are fully human and finite including in the ways that other people are gardeners or architects in ways we're not reflects back to us to help yeah. us to see where we are gifted more clearly because when you are consumed by or your experience is primarily feeling like you're beating your head against a brick wall, being able to see where other people are are gifted helps you see where you fit in the broader body of Christ. And that is just, uh, I think there is a real gift in there that really pushes back on some of the ways we kind of have been assuming and operating Even if we would deny this explicitly, we are still often functionally operating as individualist leaders, parachuting in and trying to do this on our own strength. If we're not shaped and nourished by the greenhouse ourselves, there's no way we can hope to build or nourish in our leadership, period.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And so we've been really trying to explore the last three episodes here, the rethinking leadership side of our podcast. We spent three episodes remapping culture, and we wanted to rethink leadership. We really hope that it serves you. I mean, we wanted to give you some ideas that have worked for us. And maybe there's ideas that you have on how to rethink leadership in this liminal space. We'd love to hear
0: from you as well. Yes, absolutely. Especially where what we have been talking about so far is not matching up to your experience in ways that maybe we are blind and could use some opportunity to to add another piece to the puzzle or another spot on the map and bring some of that clarity. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for helping us learn. And we hope that this has been helpful for you as well. We'll see you next time.
1: Bye-bye, everybody. See ya. Thank you for listening If you found this episode helpful, text it to a friend. Please take a minute and rate this podcast. Leaving a review helps other people find us and connect. You can send us questions or feedback by emailing us at posteverythingpod at gmail.com. Thank you.